Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in Military History. I am Boris Karpa, and with me here is a, a guest we've, which we've had on our show before, Captain Arthur Glaxon, and we are here with the second volume of his book, Bloody Verrier, the first SS Panzer Corps defense of the Verrier Bourgeois Ridges. This is volume two. We've discussed volume one here before. Welcome to our show, Arthur. Well, hello, Boris. Thank you for having me on. Now, we've talked a little bit about, well, we've had a whole show about the first volume of this book, and um, because this is a second uh, second and final volume, I would um, we've talked a bit about the planning which you've put into your work, and there's something which I would like to ask you know the battle of Verrier is not a, it, it's not exactly the most famous battle of world war 2 it's uh, also not the biggest not the longest what is it about this battle which you felt required the, you know, this two volume coverage this this very detailed um, this very i appreciate it was very hard work was very thorough treatment. Oh um, well, thank you for 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 asking. It's um, it, it, I found out very quickly in discussions with Ruth Shepard, the my editor at Casemate, that there was enough material out there for two volumes. Uh, first, the the German response in in volume one to the British gigantic uh, three armored division attack of Operation Goodwood and the Canadian. Um, side-by-side operation, supporting operation, Operation Atlantic. Um, it, but but there was also enough, more than enough material for Operation Spring and some of the very, very heavy fighting for a village uh, called Tilly La Campagne, uh, which is just to the east of uh, Verriers Ridge. Of course, Verriers Ridge and Borgibus Ridge, uh, just to the east of the Orne. And they're very much... Uh, sought after tactical features, tactically important to the Germans. The Germans, of course, um, very much interested in this area because it's flat. Well, not flat, but it's uh, good enough for tanks. And using, put well, putting these tanks and maneuvering them around on top of Verriers and Borgibus ridges, they have the advantage of uh, excellent visibility, um, use of their Panther and Tiger tank optics to shoot up basically whatever's coming uh, towards them. Um, and to uh, place their artillery observers on top of Verriers and Borgibus ridges. And this, this advantage allowed the Germans to use their anti-tank guns as well as the tanks during Operation Goodwood to crush and halt the British uh, armored assault of uh, their 8th Corps. And um, once I'd finished up that book for Volume 1, um, there's a subsequent operation, Operation Spring, which is very much very important in Canadian historiography of the Normandy campaign. It's uh, somewhat disastrous for the Canadian forces involved. It's almost, I argue, uh, a second Dieppe. If you if you think about the um, the August 1942 uh, Dieppe raid on the French port of Dieppe, in which uh, the the Canadian uh, assaulting forces as well as some British Royal Marine commandos were were badly defeated and huge losses were put on them, um, inflicted on them. Now with Verrier's Ridge, it doesn't happen all in one day. It's a slow grinding process, but the equivalent 
of this, the, the loss is taken by the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division, the same division that was present at Dieppe, is arguably, I believe, a second Dieppe because there's so many infantry casualties, it precipitated something within the Canadian Army in August and early September called the Infantry Other Ranks Reinforcement Crisis. The Germans killed or wounded or took prisoner so many Canadians that um, they're literally running out of reinforcements and thus the infantry battalions at the conclusion of the Normandy campaign and into September 1944 were very much under strength. Luckily, the Germans were desperately trying to evacuate France at this time and the Normandy campaign had been won. But with this all-volunteer Canadian army, uh, these, these losses um, were just is catastrophic and it could not be contained or not could, could not be replaced easily. Um, and, and I felt that in some ways, this is my Dieppe book in that this, this disaster has to be properly explained in minute detail. And also you're saying, you know, well, why did Casemate, why didn't it just do one big volume? Um, each of these are tremendous bang for their buck as far as, you know, the Casemate marketing strategy goes because it allows a, a U.S. reader to, to purchase 250-page book with these brand new maps, excellent photos, as well as, you know, this huge amount of very dense text uh, for $37.95. Now, if they made it into a two-volume, you know, for, I guess, uh, what's that, about $74 and, you know, have it 500 pages, it, it would, <laughs> people wouldn't buy as many of them. And, and you know, of course, they... Uh, you know, if they like the, the first one, they'll come back for the second one. So these are very much digestible and buyable books that have a lot of bang for their buck for them. Um, so, the you know, sales are going very, very well. People are interested in this. And I believe the, the, the British and the, the American and the Canadian readers um, very much are interested in this minute detail type approach that I've taken. And these maps that show the Germans, you know, a lot of times it was... Uh, uh, very much a, a new historical topic as far as, you know, what I've, uh, I've investigated right now, the, the German operations uh, on Verriers Ridge and Borgibus Ridge. Well, there have been lots of books on what the British forces and Canadian forces were doing there. The, the detail on what the Germans were doing and the investigation of these primary documents that I do in this second volume allows uh, a before- unseen picture to be, to emerge of the Germans. What was important to them? What were their military goals? What were they good at? What were they terrible at? What were the allies doing that was really causing them a, a tremendous amount of trouble? And um, how how did they approach Verriers and Borgipus Rich? And, and my conclusion is that Rommel, you know, Erwin Rommel, before he's taken out on the 17th of July by uh, RCAF Spitfire passing and shooting up his, his vehicle, he very much saw Verriers and Borgibus Ridge as another second Battle of El Alamein, just like the um, in North Africa, except this time he does have all the good Panzer divisions, every single one of them that can be scraped up very much to the detriment of the Western German forces, the 7th Army facing the U.S. Army in Normandy. But in, in uh, south of uh, Cannes and Verriers and Borgibus Ridge, and to the west in Hill 112 and 113, facing the British just to the west of the Orne River, there is no shortage of panzers or panzer divisions. And they are ready, ready to fight another battle of El Alamein.
but in France <laughs> on this perfect or somewhat perfect tank country. It's not as good as the desert, but uh, hopefully that, that answers your question there, Boris. Thank you, Arthur. Now, from this, um, you know, we, we've said, uh, we've said it, it's a very detailed book. Um, uh, clearly, um, a lot of work went into it. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the work which went into the second volume, some of the difficulties which you've overcome when you were working on it? Yes. Um, well, through the Canadian Army, I'll service through that. And as many officers in the Canadian Army, Air Force and, and Navy know that uh, French is a very important part of our lives. Um, and, and learning French and written writing French. Um, and so that wasn't, you know, French wasn't exactly a problem. And I utilized a lot of uh, the French secondary sources. And there's some amazing French um, military historians based out of Normandy, based out of Bayeux, based out of Caen, which is, you know, some of the biggest cities in Normandy. And within the University of Caen, uh, there, the, the military history scene, if you would call it there, is um, very, very good. So that wasn't a problem. That tremendously, tremendously helped me communicating with them and looking at some of these French secondary sources. What the problem was for me as a, as a non-native German speaker is... Um, learning German, understanding the German military speak of the primary documents. And, you know, after a while, I understood the gist of, you know, many, many reports and sentences, you know, you see with military reports, so there's a lot of repetition and certain words jump out at you, you know, what's going on. It's an attack or a defense or, um, the trommel, trommel you know, the drum fire, um, for, um, you know, the artillery talking about that. Um, but, uh, just learning German, understanding German, developing my understanding of German, as well as, you know, uh, engaging in conversational German uh, with some German speakers, as well as um, I had to master optical character recognition. That's O-C-P, O-C-R, O-C-R. And I use that technology to the absolute maximum in translating uh, the German uh, primary documents and war diaries, some of which still exist, others which have been destroyed, you know, uh, very much hurting my historical research. But I made the absolute most out of what remained. And uh, this really added to the book. It added that detail, you know, of what the Germans were doing, what their their um, aims were, what their, their objectives were, what was important to them, um, what was, uh, you know, not as important, what sort of losses they were taking, and how, how hard they would fight or, you know, try to defend certain objectives. The Germans, of course, being very much on the defensive in, in this, uh, in this uh, um, part of the Normandy campaign. And also something is important when you're looking at the Canadian war diaries, as well as the German war diaries or reports, or, you know, there is sometimes the cert, the writers will put a certain spin on things to minimize negative events or defeats and to maximize uh, positive events such as, as victories or perceived victories. Um, and often if something is really bad, it'll be omitted from the report altogether. So you have to work even harder to try to piece together what the truth is, the historical truth as being, you know, so one person said this, another person said this, and 17 other reports said this, and somewhere in between, in the middle of all this, of all these conflicting accounts, is the closest thing that a historian can establish as the truth, or, you know, the most accurate 
um, uh, evaluation of events. And then, of course, the historian jumps on top of this to make his or her own analysis in order to, to you know, put the final judgment, so to speak, on a historical event and, you know, declare, you know, it was a success for the Canadians or a defeat for the Canadians or the Germans uh, achieved a modest defensive success with this counterattack and so on and so forth. And also looking at other documents indicating losses and um, um, strengths and uh, the amount of forces involved and resources or lack of resources. So yes, another great challenge was putting together that historical picture, which is often a, a terrible struggle for, for military historians and made something made even worse by the lack of German primary documents, which, the, which are very, very good and survive, but right up until the year 1943. And of course, we're in the summer of 1944. So the struggle for those primary documents, some of which, um, you know, I had to go to tremendous lengths to, to obtain, um, but they were absolutely vital. And, and sometimes I, I got information from, from strange sources, such as awards decoration uh, paperwork submissions. Of course, the commander would be submitting his, uh, his subordinate for some kind of military award within the Third Reich, within its military machine, within the Wehrmacht. And of course, he had to, to, to write a report of the action. And sometimes these are elaborated or you know, made to look better in the, in the particular uh, person's uh, light who's being nominated due to the fact that they certainly had to you know, get the award or, you know, he had to succeed in, in obtaining it, the, 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 the overall higher commander in order to get his uh, subordinate to get that award. But these, um, these awards, uh, submission paperwork, um, these largely still survive, you know, if they're going to get the German cross in gold or the Knight's cross or something like that. And they talk about the actions of these officers in this particular battle. And that sometimes often, uh, makes up for the lack of, of, a, an, a, a surviving war diary or written official account of the battle. But you just have to watch out for the over-elaboration of, of the story, you know, to make the certain person, the nominee look good. Uh, but, um, Yes, yes, that, that search for the truth, uh, looking for the, the, the proper translation of German documents, sometimes looking at the same piece of paper seven or eight times, you know, in order to say, okay, have I got this properly uh, translated? It's, uh, it's, it was a struggle, but hopefully that, that answers your question, Boris. Once again, thank you, Arthur. We, and I now have a question which, you know, I... In your book, you talk about uh, the great difficulties which you know senior com Canadian commanders had with um, adapting themselves to the situation and handling handling information which they were getting from the front lines. Sometimes it's in the in the form where they get intelligence reports which don't quite make it to senior commanders, and sometimes it just just seems to be some inability to learn from events, where they keep trying similar tactics which they you know you know have worked or have you know have caused terrible casualties. And uh, well, sometimes there's a lack of coordination between different units. And so I would like to ask, and we are in 1944, and a time where, you know, generally Allied tactics have evolved significantly from what they were prior to this. And so it raises the question of, 
was there an institutional issue? Was there something with how the headquarters were organized, or or was or was it a problem with the specific officers who were in command? What do we learn about how they learned or did not learn? Um, it, the the Canadian Army in Northwest Europe in in June and July and some parts of August is a very interesting creature in that these units, while there have been some you know insertion of some veteran officers from Italy and uh, North Africa and Sicily inserted into you know key command positions, this is the army that did not go to Italy, that did not go to Sicily. And they have spent from, you know, in some cases, even from 1940, right up until the spring of 1944, uh, with the exception of various raids and sometimes in the participation in the the Dieppe operation, uh, training on Salisbury Plain and other training uh, grounds within Southern England as part of their, you know, garrison duties. And as, um, in 1943 turned into 1944, very much training for the, the assault phase of Operation Overlord, uh, the assault on Juno Beach. Now we come into uh, July 1944, late 1940 or late July 1944, and there's a huge demand placed upon the army to um, at the at the core level to uh, to uh, conduct offensive operations, uh, dynamic offensive operations, and a lot of people. Uh, Sometimes, um, you know, see, you know, they, they look at the Second World War and they see it as vastly different from the First World War, the 1914-1918 uh, war, the Great War. But had the Canadian tactics changed all that much, had the British Army changed all that much from 1918 to the year 1943, 1942, 1944, um, infantry tactics, you know, the, there is some new technology, but the idea of um, you know so a massive tank attack you know we did see some instances of this the battles of Villers Bocage uh, operation Goodwood uh, some others but looking at some other battles within Normandy and some operations it very much resembles the first world war battlefield in the, that it was very much infantry led bite and hold with you know often a not massive armored force but a sprinkling of armor but not in overwhelming amounts, such as you might see on the Eastern Front with giant Soviet tank armies maneuvering with the huge amounts of tanks on the, the plain or the plains of the Ukrainian steppe. And so we often see uh, a highly scripted, highly organized, almost Vimy Ridge style assault. And that's what in this second volume, uh, volume two of Bloody Barriers, and to a certain extent with um, with uh, Operation Atlantic discussed in, in Volume 1. We see uh, the core staff of the 2nd Canadian Corps very much running the operation, very much uh, planning everything into the smallest minute, you know, what certain battalions do, when they'll do it, certain phases, and of course, you know, certain battalions will pass through other battalions that have captured objectives first to move on to second and third and fourth battalions. And just like in the First World War, when they'd unleashed, they had the plan, the final plan to unleash the cavalry divisions and the, the, the riders on horseback, except the equivalent for that in the summer of 1944 is to unleash the armor after the infantry has chewed its way through. Now, of course, as the, as the listeners today can probably understand, if 
something happens terrible in the first or second stages with these infantry battalions, it derails the whole of this highly scripted sequence of events. And the battalion commanders are sort of on their own. They only have so many resources. And because uh, Lieutenant General Guy Simmons, the commander of the 2nd Canadian Corps, had um, highly scripted everything, the, the ability of brigade commanders or divisional commanders to deploy reserves or control reserves or deploy overwhelming force if they see saw fit for it was somewhat limited so you have simmons with a this is you know the 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 sort of the three refusals of guy simmons refusal to trust his subordinates refusal to delegate authority refusal to make the execution of the end state um non-scripted in the into to let so he always has very, very tight control on the operation from start to finish. And for some units of the Canadian Army, Operation Atlantics in spring are, are their first actions. That's the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division. The 3rd Canadian Infantry Division had been there since, since Juno Beach. Um, now, did he over-attack during spring on the 25th of June, the same day as the, the victorious Operation Cobra starts for the Americans in the West? But during Operation Spring, he very much attacks as he did in Operation Atlantic with the, an infantry-first assault. And and these there's no overwhelming you know, large group of Canadian armor to attack and destroy the Germans into, a, in effect, win an armored battle. So a lot of these... Infantry battalions, when they first were, you know, attacking at night, the first part of the attack for Operation Spring was at night, um, when they ran into trouble or were attacked at night by German tanks, they didn't have this, um, the ability to draw in, put in reserves uh, to, to attack with overwhelming force. They only had the forces that were at hand. Um, so, and the ability in 1944 to pass information, especially in the middle of the night when everyone's exhausted and tired, um, the radios were very, very fragile. And the ability for infantry battalion commanders and the, even the company commanders to carry radios with them um, in the middle of the darkness, you know, these terribly fragile radios that would break down at the drop of a hat, the ability for a brigade commander, a divisional commander, or even the corps commander to even know, have the slightest inkling of what is going on and to fix it and to sort of have that fingertip feel. There's a translation of fingertip feel uh, into German, which, you know, is a, is a reference to their military commander's ability to read the battlefield, to be on the battlefield. And also, um, the, the brigade and divisional commanders were very much within bunkers, sometimes two to three kilometers behind the front lines, waiting for reports, you know, very much, you know, often just reliant on runners that would run into the headquarters and say something that happened or did not happen or an accurate or an inaccurate report. So that flexibility, when things are spinning out of control or the Canadian infantry battalions or companies or platoons are getting savaged by a group of uh, German Panzer IV tanks or Panther tanks and they're shooting them up quite quite badly, the ability to, to respond with overwhelming force overwhelming combat power, such as the United States, for example, deployed during Operation Desert Storm in 1991 to, to simply sweep away the, the, uh, the Iraqis in, a, in an overwhelming manner with there's absolutely no, no, uh, no question as to the, the outcome. This, this overwhelming force, overwhelming firepower, it's, it's never there for the Canadians at the first part of the battle when it really counts. And, um, 
rather than the First World War creeping barrage, they do on-time concentrations, which is an artillery term for, you know, a bombardment of a certain map uh, grid or uh, a town or village for a certain amount of time. And this was supposedly good enough. Um, and of course, how were the infantrymen in pitch darkness going to, to follow a creeping barrage? And they, you know, it's, it wouldn't really work. Um, but um, they, they attempt to use innovative tactics in the way of shining anti-aircraft spotlights off the low cloud. And this works and it doesn't work in that the Germans uh, take tremendous tactical advantage of this as the Canadian soldiers are silhouetted by this light that, that makes it easy for the German machine gunners to you know shoot them up. But this by Lieutenant Kurt, uh, General Simmons, the Corps Commander for the, the 2nd Canadian Corps, who's attacking with the 2nd and 3rd Canadian Infantry Divisions, supported almost administratively by the 2nd Canadian Armoured Brigade. The, the brigade is not fought as a formation to attack the Germans, but its, its squadrons within its armoured, three armoured regiments, are almost penny-packeted out. There's no other word for it other than that 1940 term for the French Army during the, the Blitzkrieg penny packeting out of armor rather than having the the overwhelming mailed or uh iron clad male armored fist of you know 200 or 300 tanks all massed together or 180 tanks um of of the second canadian armored brigade to to attack and you know to attempt to fight and win an armored battle and bash their way through for the other uh formations which are often very much forgotten about during Operation Spring. There was the Guards Armoured Division, the British Armoured Division, very, very powerful, and the British 7th Armoured Division, very, very powerful. Now, the, the everything goes wrong for Simmons, and um, uh, um, what is it, uh, not Lieutenant General, but General Miles Dempsey, the, the commander of the British 2nd uh, Army, he is very much... Uh, put limits on Simmons after seeing the effects of Operation Atlantic and how badly some Canadian infantry battalions were destroyed there. He says, if you don't have success with your infantry attack by, you know, a certain time, the next, you know, mid midday on the 25th, he would not commit <clears throat> the, the Guards Armoured Division, the 7th Armoured Division. He shut the whole operation down and wouldn't let Simmons use these follow-on divisions. But I argue in the book, you know, this, this refusal, almost steadfast refusal to commit maximum force, maximum artillery attack, maximum armored attack, maximum force, of course, was always needed. It's needed today. It's, it was needed in in, um, in Iraq during uh, Operation Desert Storm, and it was uh, very much needed at certain times during the Second World War. And it is not committed by, um, by, by Simmons in this case. And, you know, this over-scheduled you know, a bite and hold First World War style attack with these infantry battalions, the Germans just chew it up. And there's a tremendous tragedy with the, the Black Watch Royal Highland, or the Black Watch of Canada, the Royal Highland Regiment of Canada is, is terribly defeated by German tank fire as it's um, attempting almost single-handedly to, to advance up Verrier's Ridge. And, you know, the, the German tank commanders can't, can't believe it at first, this mass of Canadian men going through these fields of wheat, and they're, they're just chewed up by the German MG42 machine gun fire, as well as the Panzer IV tank fire from the village of Maceron. And it's a, it's a terrible defeat. And the fact that that brigade commander, the 5th Canadian Infantry Brigade, who, who has the Black Watch under its command, uh, can't... Um, summon maximum force, or even organize the the attacks themselves is is a terrible tragedy, 
and it shows the lack of trust that Simmons had in his brigade commanders, not allowing them to have access to reserves and not allowing them to form their own battle groups to do the job and to plan the, 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 the attack themselves in the way that German um, regimental and brigade level commanders were given that, that responsibility through Aufstrag Taktik, which I'm sure you'll ask me about maybe a little bit more here. Um, but over to you, Boris. Yes, I would like to actually actually zoom in on this a little bit. You talk in your book about how Germans were more flexible, how they had a better ability to to adapt to the situation that they were in, which was a very difficult situation for them because a lot of these units, like you wrote in your book, were weakened already. They were had shortages of certain equipment. Now, in your in the previous volume, you you, you talked a lot about the structure of their headquarters and how they how this affected their decision making. And um, in this book, of course, you also talk about their training and uh, um, mission type tactics. Uh, off, the off tracks. Off, I'm sorry, it's difficult for me. The, the, the mission type tactics which they used um, and how these things fit together. So um, I'd like to ask you do you think there was something about the way in which they were organized, the, the layout of their divisional structure, which made it easier for the command staff to sort of um, integrate the pieces of information they were receiving to make the decisions? Uh, yes. Um, it was, um, you see it. In the Canadian Army of 1944, there's a huge focus on paperwork and written orders and, you know, very detailed. Everything is set piece. The, the Battle of Vimy Ridge is fought over and over and over and over again. And, of course, this is all very good for rehearsals and, you know, what we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to do this. But it's all very, very highly scripted. And and the the, the, the delegation of authority is, is very, very limited. Um, so... The, the Germans often, they, you know, I talk about this in my um, chapter on within the book uh, called the, the, the Attack of the Hohenstaufen Division. It's, um, let's just see what chapter it is here, just briefly for a second. It's, um, yes, chapter eight, the Attacks of the Hohenstaufen, 27 to 20, or 25 to 27 July. Um, this is, of course, in reference to the 9th SS Panzer Division Hohenstaufen, which is um, located in, in a reserve in depth uh, beside the Orne River and to the west of it, some parts of it, or to the east. Um, and what it has to do, or what, what, what it happens during uh, 25th of July Operation Spring, the, um, it is, for lack of very good intelligence on the German part, the, the Germans don't really know for sure if another Goodwood is happening with Operation Spring. Is this another three-division British armored tank assault that's about to happen? And without waiting to really find out, they unleash the Hohenstaufen. And of course, the chief of staff of the 1st SS Panzer Corps calls up the divisional commander and gives um, uh, very, very um, general broad brush instructions on the end state he wishes to, to um, 
to uh, to obtain uh, correction story. He speaks with the chief of staff, the divisional commander for the 9th SS Panzer Division. Hohensoffen is driving around at the time, and he speaks to the chief divisional chief of staff, um, and he gives them, of course, that the the rough. Um, um, direction, you know, you'll take one battle group, you'll do this. You'll take your other battle group and you're going to do this. But at that time, at that point, he says, right, any questions? No, get to it. That's it. And so that, that actual telephone conversation is everything. It is everything because of course they've been put in the counterattack role there to deploy to forward to various Ridge to fight, to defend the Ridge and to defeat any uh, massive uh, Canadian or British armored attack or, you know, whatever attack, you know, materializes, it's all been reversed and spoken about. So everybody knows what to do. But the, from that point on, the uh, the divisional commander arrives at the command post of the 9th SS Panzer Division, Hohenstaufen, speaks with the chief of staff who relates everything, puts him in the picture. And then when the various battle group commanders, uh, there's two major battle groups, uh, battle group uh, Zollhofer and Battle Group Meyer. Uh, they arrive. One is one battle group is based on the tank regiment. The other one's based on the, what's left of their Panzer Grenadier forces. Of course, all the German forces within Normandy at this time facing huge amounts of attrition, uh, both people and you know equipment. Um, the only way that these uh, you know units or units or divisions are rebuilt is you know in the fall of 1944 so when the germans you know talk about reinforcements or something like that it's brand new units that's how they do it that's how they 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 get reinforcements um but um there's a tremendous amount of of informal talk back at the 9th ss panzer division um headquarters in which the battle group commanders are summoned forward and they're given um very rough uh uh attack objectives. One is to go through the, the village of May on the left flank and then push north towards points Hill 67, which is an important tactical feature. The other uh, battle group is sent off to conquer Verrier's Ridge, this being Meyer's battle group with, um, and this is not Kurt Meyer, it's another Meyer who's uh, in charge of the 9th SS Panzer Division um, tank regiment, and he has various infantry forces and artillery forces are attached to both of these regiments. And then there's um, uh, the, the, the division commander and the chief of staff also speak to the artillery commander and say, you will you know, support these two battle groups in their advance to the north over the River Orne and up to Verrier's Ridge and the village of Mace Orne and to deal with the Canadians there. But once they're unleashed, off they go, and the battle group commanders zip back to their battle groups, which are already in motion, which they've, you know, they've set them off already. They know what the plan is and roughly what they're doing, and they've set them in motion. Um, and then the, um, the the division commander does eventually travel north to meet with them and to give them a bit more detail, but he gives them just enough to keep going and just enough to, to get them... Um, to a, a basic understanding of what his instinct is, you know, driving the Canadians off Barriers Ridge, the, the the saving of that important tactical feature, and clearing them out of May. And um, as a third objective, you know, the the total destruction of whatever massive Canadian attack is going on to completely shut it down. And then in in a in a in a counterattack or a Panzer charge to the north to seize uh, Hill sixty seven to clear off Barriers Ridge and push northwards um, if the opportunity promotes itself. And of course, these German battle group commanders, when they're you know back with their people, you know, in the field and they're traveling north towards the Canadians, they're pretty much cut off 
uh, from communication. They know what they're supposed to do. They know who's on the left and right flank of them. But uh, due to radio triangulation, something that's uh, very horrible from the Germans, and a lot of historians don't really understand how bad this was, um, the, any German um, uh, high-frequency uh, uh, radio communications would automatically get picked up and triangulated by Canadian or British artillery units who would then uh, use triangulation to locate the rough area of this transmission and automatically uh, deliver a, a very crushing um, artillery bombardment or concentration on that location. They couldn't see what was there, but you know, they're going to blast it. So you see a lot of verbal communication and movement of German commanders using vehicles back and forth to their units that meet with the various, uh, you know, Panther company tank commander and talk to him about what he's going to do and then drive away and back to his tactical headquarters, which is often moving or often in a bunker very close to the front line. So, and of course they would risk their lives, um, you know, being exposed in this manner. So we see the, um, the, whatchamacallit, the commander of the 9th SS Panzer Division. He is badly wounded in, in July. And of course, um, his chief of staff, uh, no, is the, uh, the, art- the artillery regimental commander takes over for as commander of the 9th SS Panzer Division. And this is also a terrible, terrible problem for the Allies, or for the Germans, which uh, totally impairs their command and control, is that the shelling never ever ever stops it just goes on and on and on and on and of course the the british americans and canadian armies and their artillery units the royal artillery and the royal canadian artillery or royal regiment of canadian artillery they have nearly bottomless um bottomless pits of uh 25 pounder shells that that are constantly going on but you see a hugely informal german um, method of operation based on achieving very roughly defined objectives rather than, you know, put all on paper, you know, that, you know, Simmons could confront his battalion commanders with later on and say, you didn't ab- achieve this objective and you didn't attack when you did and you didn't to uh, achieve victory, even though I didn't give you enough um, assets. How the Kampfgruppen, the, the Kampfgruppe, that's a German term for the battle group, how they operated with what um, assets they had is certainly up to them, how they deployed those assets, how they fought their battles, how they attempted to maneuver on the battlefield all that was mattered was achieving that very rough instinct and of course the germans had were very much practiced in this this command structure and this offstrike tactic uh defensive way of fighting uh because they had been doing it you know from some parts of 1942 uh for roughly half of 1943 you know in russia and all of 1944 in russia so were they very very good at it yes um one of the two factors that really threw the germans for a loop in normandy was the artillery the severity of the non-stop never-ending endless artillery and of course anytime it was beautiful enough weather for fighter bombers to fly the endless death from above the constant strafing and during operation spring some of the small successes of the second canadian corps are you know in effect saved from german counterattacks due to the intervention of the typhoon and the spitfire fighter bombers and the very very brave pilots who fight back in the, the village of Verriers and save the royal hamilton light infantry from being engulfed in a panther tank attack which is very you know but given a you know a, a brushing over within the, within the canadian official history um 
you know, as well as various British forces that do come in and intervene on Verrier's Ridge to, you know, very much make a fight of it. But their their his their part in the historical record, the official Canadian history of the the Normandy campaign, you know, published by the Canadian Army, is is very much somewhat brushes this over. But the um the, how the Germans operated is very much uh, very very flexible. And of course, this could lead to very, very good results, but often very bad results, you know, because they're sort of operating in a vacuum at times. And, you know, if things were going very, very badly for the Germans, uh, it took their higher headquarters uh, some time to learn about it and react um, if that delegated camp group commander did not have the proper resources to handle any type of situation. The the allocation of, of reserves and more units, more, more, um, more resources on top, I know, because uh, they were resources were very scarce. So um, there's very much stressed importance upon that, that battle group commander having enough, enough to do what he was asked to do, or at least to hold the allies off in some fat way, shape or form. And um, this, well, it goes very right for the Germans on Verrier's Ridge and Borgibus Ridge. And they, they savage the, the British eighth Corps and the Canadian second Corps. Uh, it goes very wrong for them during Operation Cobra. Um, when um, the, the United States Infantry Divisions, the, the 4th Infantry Division, the 9th Infantry Division, and the 30th Infantry Division attack and literally hack their way through the German lines through just overwhelming force in a very small um, little area. And uh, the Germans, you know, they don't know what's happening until it's literally too late. So communication is everything. And so while the, the German Kampfgruppen, Aufstrag tactics, uh, way of fighting did often bring success. And it's, you know, when it went bad, it went really, really bad. Uh, so hopefully that, that gives you some insight there, Boris. I would like to just... Uh ask you do you have any general conclusions you know you know because it's it's both a military history show which we're having which is both about the history and the military science do you think that there's something we can learn from this uh, from this uh, terrible moment in in time which could be applicable to military science today is there anything we can say in general about what what makes uh, what makes it easier for military organizations to be more flexible to learn from their uh, from uh, problems which they're having to adapt to difficulties which they're having yes um, technology is everything and it seems um, infantry are more vulnerable than ever of course during operation desert storm the the, the you know the epitome of success we have this uh, tremendous advantage the american army um the seventh corps has in in um it's uh it's it's technology and it's abrams tanks and it's bradley fighting vehicles and total air superiority but um in, in Normandy in 1944, technology is very much, in some ways, very much beneficial to the Allies for their air war, their tactical air war over Normandy. But there's almost an inability to fight and win a tank battle. Uh, for So it, it says that says tremendous amount about the importance of technology, the ability of armor to attack and destroy the enemy, you know, go right through them in sort of like a uh, cavalry charge uh, in the Middle Ages with knights on horseback and the, during the Crusades or something like that. It's um, it's very, very much needed in, in a desert storm style fashion. Oh. 
Hello Arthur, we've had a small technical issue and I'd like to circle back to what you said before our connection dropped off slightly. I'd like to circle back to what you said about uh, the technology and how it connects to operational and technical flexibility. Uh, yes, um, the technology, as it was in 1944, very, very important today in 2023, uh, you see uh, the importance, the overwhelming importance of, of having the, the, the absolute correct technology to do the job and to, to do it in a fashion so that your infantry on the battlefield survives. Uh, it's very, very important. Um, and we see uh, some, some allied technology during 1944, for example, fighter bombers, and artillery pieces and, and organizations, you know, that use this technology being very much superior. Uh, other organizations on the Allied side, such as the uh, Armored Corps, Armored Regiments, um, various uh, uh, tank units, as well as the tank technology, the Sherman tank, um, sometimes uh, coming up a bit short. So the ability to um, you know, launch a massive Falnix-like armored assault, um, such as in Desert Storm, you're absolutely cutting through the enemy like butter um, with um, thousands, not thousands, but, but hundreds of, uh, hundreds of uh, Abrams tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles all making excellent progress to achieve their, their battlefield objectives. Um, that ability on the British or the Anglo-Canadian side uh, with the armored uh, regiments they had at their disposal and how they, the, the level of technology they were equipped with, uh, it wasn't there. And such, the Germans with their superior technology at times, even though the German tanks were sometimes uh, mechanically not as reliable or were not as uh, serviceable, um, they did have excellent guns and excellent armor. And fighting defensively, as the Germans were for the majority of the Normandy campaign, they were able to stop and sometimes uh, shut down um, Allied offensive operations. So um, just as we see um, in the Ukraine, there's the battlefield uh, front lines. Uh, sometimes they're very fluid and sometimes there's, they're not. That ability to cut through the enemy like butter is sometimes not there. And it also, it all depends on what technology is being used, its level, and its its ability to, to return on its investment. That is to, uh, for lack of a better word, it's so a little bit, um, a little bit crude and, and not very nice to say, but the ability to kill the enemy and kill them quickly and to thus achieve your military objectives and push through the, the, the enemy's front line, it, it has to be there. Of course, nothing um, reinforces uh, the need for change like defeats and heavy, heavy casualties, especially when you have a finite amount of humans you can feed into the equation or the, the cauldron of, of battle um, success. Of course, everybody wants to jump on a bandwagon of success and follow a proven or new formula uh, that, that suddenly works or uses technology that is available in a different way. Uh, and then, of course, when uh, people are getting killed, that nothing drives innovation like that. It's uh, also very not not very nice to say. And and the Germans in 1944, they had learned from Operation Goodwood and the massive uh, bomber attack. You know, they're using the strategic four-engine bombers to to you know, I talk about this in Volume One to to annihilate um, the front lines of the the Germans, and thus they placed all their armored divisions very much in depth sometimes five or even 10 kilometers back from the, the front lines of the battlefield. And these, these armored units were meant to drive forward and thus escape 
the 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 technological industrial assault of the Allies with these four-engine bombers that are used to literally carpet bomb the the enemy. Um, and so often we we see uh, an almost a static front at times within Normandy. You know, as as long as that. The, you know, without that heavy, heavy use of, of technology in the way of four-engine bombers or massive artillery bombardments uh, or, you know, massing three tank divisions to attack at once, the, the front lines didn't, didn't move all that quickly. Uh, so in June, you know, it takes until, you know, the first part of July for the city of Caen to fall and the, and the British are somewhat held up. Um, and it's, it seems at times like it's almost devolving into a 1915-style Flanders Field static warfare in places. Of course, the, the British very much want to avoid this at all costs, and, and Montgomery saying, attack, attack, attack. Uh, but the, the technology in order to carry out that 1991 Desert Storm-style assault across the desert um, it's it's not there, and then the British they have to fall back. The Anglo-Canadian forces have to fall back on the two big, the one-two punch: the artillery and the use of air power, both uh, for tactical ground attack and the heavy bombers, which are re-rolled from bombing German cities in the Ruhr back to the Stone Age to to bombing parts of the German front line in order to to create that hole in the the front line and to allow their their units to. Uh, carry out operational maneuver warfare, which at times very much eludes the British due to this lack of technology, this lack of technology which vastly impairs the Royal Armoured Corps, which vastly impairs the Canadian Armoured Corps from attacking in mass, just like Desert Storm, to attack and destroy the enemy and to win the tank battle. And it also did not help that a lot of Canadian units... Um, that are fighting in Normandy were under the command of Simmons, who had just come from Italy, which is very much not a tank-friendly environment. So you have this infantry-first mentality with a penny packet of tanks, and thus it reinforces the, we don't need a huge amount of armor, and if we try this, as the British did in 19, in Operation Goodwood, in the uh, 18th of July, then a huge amount of tanks will be knocked out by the Germans. So let's fight, fight like we did in Italy, Infantry first with a penny packet of tanks, but there's a problem. The, the, the Germans are deployed in massive, massive force south of Caen. They have all these panzer divisions, and they're not fighting as they fought in Italy. They're fighting to, to, an, to annihilation, to defeat, and to fight this giant battle of El Alamein to, to beat back the Anglo-British or Anglo-Canadian forces um, in order to, to save their front in Normandy. Of course, totally denuding the western part of their, their Normandy frontage and allowing the Americans to break through, which they do in dynamic fashion with Operation Cobra. But um, I guess... Um, these days, uh, nothing reinforces um, or nothing achieves battlefield success like uh, the, the, a new technology in uh, allow you to, to maximize your combat force and achieve uh, instantaneous results such as that were achieved uh, during Operation Desert Storm. I keep going back because that's the, what, to my mind, the, the ultimate example of the superior application of, of combat uh, or technology to, to, um, to, to mass uh, combat force in, in order to achieve your objectives in a dynamic fashion very, very quickly. So hopefully that that uh, answers your question there, Boris. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. Now I would like to move on to the last question of our show, which, you know, which is a traditional question. 
um, as I always say, we're creatures of tradition here. Um, can you tell us about the books you are reading right now? Where are you at your current step in your book journey? Oh, yes. Um, I'm re currently reading two books. Um, I've just started this one. Uh, the fellow who wrote the, uh, very nice to write the, the foreword uh, for my book, is very much established Eastern Front um, a historian, uh, retired Colonel U.S. Army Douglas E. Nash Sr., and this is the second volume of his From the Realm of a Dying Son uh, trilogy. Uh, this is volume two, the the, the fourth SS Panzer Corps, um, attempting to relieve Budapest. It's the, in the, in the, in the Budapest relief efforts, December 1944 to February 1945. And, you know, people often forget, you know, where were some of the best panzer divisions as the, uh, as the Russians and the Americans and the British swarmed over Germany and invaded it from the East and invaded it from the West. So they were in Hungary fighting to attempt to save the Hungarian capital and prop up the, um, the last ally of Germany, um, the, uh, the Hungarian army. Um, and, Douglas E. Nash, former um, professor within the United States Marine Corps University, I believe, as well as, you know, after a long and distinguished career within the U.S. Army, has fully transformed himself into an amazing military historian. And these books, uh, Salesways, for my publisher, Casemate, are doing very, very well from the realm of a dying son, if the, the hopefully the listeners can remember that. Uh, he provides an excellent map and excellent detail and is probably one of the first and foremost military historians of the Eastern front uh, today. Uh, the second book uh, came out a little while ago, but I'm you know, pushing through it right now, is Gunners in Normandy by uh, Will Towand and Frank Baldwin. Unfortunately, one of those authors has have passed away now, but this is the, the history of the Royal Artillery in Northwest Europe from January 1944 to August, or Jan January 1942 to August 1944, and it details uh, what I believe is the strongest combat arm of the British Army in the campaign in Northwest Europe, as well as in Italy and North Africa and Sicily, as well as other other uh, fronts and um, uh, theaters of the British Army during the Second World War. This is, of course, the, the Royal Artillery. And uh, they um, include within this book the accounts of the Royal Canadian Artillery. And I believe some of the best officers and the best technology, as well as the best tactics, organizational tank, uh, organizational systems, command and control, uh, is was exercised by the Royal Artillery and the British Army, um, despite the you know or you know um, you know is in conjunction with the the valiant efforts of the infantry and Royal Armour Corps. It was the Royal Artillery which very much won battles for the British Army in Normandy and allowed the British Army to uh, swarm across France into the Low Countries and eventually invade Germany. Um, the, 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 the sophistication, the power, the raw brute force of the Royal Artillery drove the Germans back again and again and again. And this uh, important new history, Gunners in Normandy by Town and Baldwin, um, provides an excellent, excellent uh, synthesis and, and historical chronicle of, of what made the Royal Artillery, Royal Canadian Artillery, uh, so effective, 
how they fought their battles, and not only the field artillery battle, but the anti-tank battle, the anti-aircraft battle, um, is you know, and then of course the, the 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 field artillery and the you know battle carried out by the medium regiments and the field artillery regiments, and of course their use of self-propelled artillery and uh, their their part in the very very important uh, D-Day um, Overlord Operation Neptune, which is the amphibious portion of uh, Operation Overlord, how they, they participated in that as well, and how they broke the back of many German panzer attacks that attempted to drive the British Second Army into the sea after the, uh, after the um, Normandy invasion. So yes, this is a, a masterful work with a huge amount of pages, a tremendous amount of bang for the buck, 600 and something pages, and it's, it's very good. Uh, the Douglas Nash books, there's three, three, um, editions in this a three volume set dealing with this fourth SS Panzer Corps, which has the Waffen SS Panzer divisions, the, the Viking and the uh, Tokenkoff and dealing with um, their attempts to, to fight off the Russians and relieve Budapest and um, fight off the Russians as they attempt to attack Warsaw and many other important battles leading up to their eventual surrender in the end of the war. But uh, Douglas Nash uh, Will Talent and Frank Baldwin, um, three tremendous historians. And um, I do hope uh, the re- listeners can, can rush out and buy those books today. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today, Arthur. Oh, thank It's very much my pleasure. I always enjoy your company and being on your uh, your uh, radio show. Um, hopefully I've given the, the, the listeners enough bang for their buck today for, for their time and invested in listening to this radio program. And oh, of definitely course my, you have. And of course, if you, when you, you know, inevitably write another book, you're always, you know, welcome here. Oh, thank you very much.